0: Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, it'salljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks and enjoy the episode.
1: I think when folks are still talking about diversity now, I'm like, well, I'm glad that there's still awareness, but I also feel that 20 odd years down the line, why are we still talking about this like let's just do it it should just be part of what we do
0: how do we engage new audiences and tell the stories of people who have long been ignored by mainstream media that's the thread that runs through the career of this week's podcast guest i'm michael o'connell welcome to it's all journalism Joanne Griffith was recently appointed the Chief Content Officer at APM Studios, which is part of the American Public Media Group. In her new role, she oversees APM Studios editorial vision and brand voice. Joanne, welcome to It's All Journalism.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: So Ed, you've had a pretty long and fascinating career. Before we turn to the microphones, we were talking about that you were podcasting in, in two thousand eight. Why don't you tell me a little about yourself and uh, you know how you got interested in audio production?
1: Yeah, I really actually blame my. Dad, of all people for this career that I've had in audio. My family's from from Barbados and if you've ever been, it's a place where pretty much everyone is a storyteller. You know, everyone has a way of talking and a way of just really kind of like submerging you in a storyline or in something that has happened in the past and growing up you know I would listen to my dad tell stories of you know his life growing up and then you know the the three-week boat trip that he made from Barbados to the UK when he moved back in the 60s all the way through to you know some really sad stories of how hard it was for him and my mum when they first you know moved to the UK back in the mid-60s but the other thing that he would do was you know being from the Caribbean is a huge fan of cricket and to listen to cricket, you know, this was in the days, you know, I'm going to age myself here, but this was kind of, you know, in the days before satellite TV was pervasive and all the rest of it, we would listen to cricket matches, you know, the West Indies playing Pakistan or India or Sri Lanka or whatever on medium wave radio. And we would just lie on the floor and we would like just listen to this phenomenal commentary. And so for me, that was kind of, a time that I spent with my dad, but just my first introduction into just the power of kind of painting a scene for people with sound and with voice when they're not there or they're not able to to see it. So he's still with us. I'm kind of like, high five, dad. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for this career that I've had. But really, that was my introduction. That and also in the Caribbean and in Barbados in particular, talk radio is really the way that a lot of people would get their information, either from the BBC World Service or from, you know, from local outlets. So anytime you're on the island, radios are just on all the time. And it's everything from, you know, obituaries to road closures to hurricane watches, all kinds of stuff. But radio just really is a part of of how people live and how they connect with their community. And you know it was something that i was really interested in from from a very young age so my dad caribbean heritage and listening to cricket all my my roads into the industry
0: that's a pretty sweet story of how you got interested in it that's something that would become your career so tell me how you ended up at the bbc as a reporter or were you a reporter or producer
1: i actually started out as a volunteer so i'm one of the youngest of six children the next sibling up from me is also a journalist she's a, actually a journalism professor now but she worked in music journalism for a long time and of course you know I always got to go with my big sister to when she covered concerts and you know like her life was just so glamorous and I was like man I, I want to do that but had like no interest in music in that kind of way so I did a the same postgraduate diploma in journalism that my sister had taken years prior at the University of Westminster and my teacher there Jim Latham actually was the managing editor of of my local station in Luton which is my my hometown just outside of London and he invited me to come to the station to work on one of their evening shows their weekend show which was for kind of black folks who lived in Luton and the the surrounding towns at the time so I actually started out as a volunteer answering phones but that's where I learned how to book guests and how to write scripts how to cut actual literal tape, <laughs> you know, quarter inch tape with a razor blade and, and splicing tape, you know, kind of little pieces of chalk. But that's really where I started, answering phones, basically kind of doing anything that, that needed to be done. I then kind of transferred over to to the newsroom and it was the year that Tony Blair was, was elected as a prime minister, the first Labour prime minister, I think for what, probably about 20 years at that point after Margaret Thatcher and, and John Major. And, you know, that's where I started covering, you know, news within my community in my town. But what was always really clear to me was the news that we were covering, the stories that we were covering, weren't actually ones that were representative of my community, the black community, the Caribbean community in Luton. And so I started to find ways to kind of add stories from my community because there weren't any other black people that worked in my newsroom and you know those stories were not always necessarily welcome or the first ones to be picked but I just kept going you know I found other people other reporters who were open to you know getting exclusives and doing different stories and I was kind of like hey look this is maybe something that you want to cover and did it that way so for me it was it was, yes, about working in the industry, but honestly, it was always more so about how, how do I get greater representation for my community and people that look like me rather than just, you know, being a voice on the air, which was not anything that I ever aspired to.
0: So your work was, was primarily behind the scenes? Yes. Now, I know you talked about diversity initiatives that you were doing at the BBC. Could you talk a little bit about those and, and what it was you were doing? Yeah so
1: a lot of my work as I just mentioned there really was about how do you cover different communities and I made a move from my local station BBC Three Counties to BBC London you know it was it was everyone's aspiration you start out in a, a small local station and then you move you move to the big city you go to London and do your storytelling there and covering diversity and, and leading diversity initiatives were not really anything that I'd necessarily thought about because I just It was work that I did, but because of that, my boss at the time at BBC London, she was kind of like, hey, we're we're doing this initiative. We're trying to, you know, have more diverse voices, you know, on air, on television. It was kind of early days of kind of online and digital reporting for BBC London and she's like but we need someone to lead that initiative would you be interested and I was like yeah sure and so we really kind of looked at it from two sides so one side was well actually three sides so one side really was the content you know how do we make it more diverse how do we make what we're putting out you know across our platforms really representative of the more than 300 communities that are represented in London The other part of that was how do we actually make the community part of our coverage? So we we set up a kind of like a community listening board and they would come to us with stories, but they would also kind of review stories that we would put out and said, you know what, that was good. or "Mm, That didn't really kind of hit the mark or, hey, here's another way that you could have thought about that. And then the other part was. Really looking at, well, who's telling the stories? You know, when I started working at BBC London, and quite honestly for a big chunk of my career with the BBC, you know, there were not that many people of colour in, you know, producer, reporter or host roles and so it was looking at how do we make the bbc a place a destination of choice for journalists of color so i was very much involved in that as well so via that three-pronged approach you know training people in-house as well it was really looking at what are we putting out who are we bringing in and how are we fairly representing these these different communities and i did that 20 years ago that would have been actually 22 years ago that was in the year 2000 so it both upsets me but also keeps me hopeful that we're still talking about diversity I really do think we've got to a point where we should just be doing it you know it's not just about it's the right thing to do you know it's the moral thing to do it's also just like good business sense you know the more people that you're reaching the more people that you're representing across your platforms you know that is revenue it's brand recognition you know it's longevity it's retaining the audience it's all of those things so i think when folks are still talking about diversity now i'm like well i'm glad that there's still awareness but i also feel that 20 odd years down the line why are we still talking about this like let's just do it it should just be part of what we do
0: yeah one would think that things would move forward (laughs) once people start realizing it's a good thing to do not just as you said, because it's the morally or the ethically right thing to do, but it it just makes good business sense. Also you have that component with the BBC since it's a publicly funded, you know, media system that the people who are paying into it want to be able to see people who represent them and in their interests, and people who look like them, you know, sort of built into that business structure of the BBC in itself, you know, there's this incentive to diversify that unfortunately we don't have a lot of that many opportunities here in the US. Anyway, how would you end up in Southern California? Tell me about that experience. I met a boy, <laughs> and he it's was always a lo- like that.
1: Yeah, and he was a lovely boy, and he was a boy from California. So of course I had to come. But no, I, I met I met my husband. I am still with said said boy. But no, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was really the reason. But you know, it was one of those things. I really do think it was the best thing that I could have done, you know, not not only because, you know, I get to be here with my husband, but, you know, I was looking for, for other opportunities and other challenges. You know, when I moved out here, I had been working with the BBC for a decade. And even though my early years were very much behind the scenes as a producer, showrunner, etc. You know, before I moved out to the States, I was actually on air. I was a, a news anchor for BBC Radio 5 Live, which is a news and sports station back in the UK. But one thing that I do when I'm travelling is, you know, like like I'm a nerd, right? <laughs> this, is, this is who I am. But I love going to radio stations and anywhere I go in the world, I'll always, you know, see if there's someone that I can find who is maybe as random as I am and doesn't think anything weird about someone saying hey can I come and have a look around your radio station but that's what what happened when I came to LA and I was like oh let me you know let me just see if I can visit some stations while I'm here you know I got to visit with some folks at Marketplace which is also part of APM and I also got to visit with some folks at the Pacifica radio station here in Los Angeles KPFK and while I didn't end up doing anything with the station I actually found out that they had At the time, it would have been like a 60 year old archive, one of the oldest public media, public radio collections in the US. And I was like, like, what is this place? And literally there's a vault that has thousands of tapes, thousands and thousands of tapes, and you can pull them out and it's Martin Luther King or it's Malcolm X or Fannie Lou Hamer or Joni Mitchell, like just all of these people. And I'm like, wait, have you ever done anything with this tape? And so basically, I had an idea to do a show, you know, kind of history with the benefit of hindsight, where we got to play some of this amazing archive material. We'd have guests on to talk about these particular moments in history. I did that for like seven years, you know, in addition to, you know, I was freelancing at KPCC and other places. But again, it's just that whole thing about... You know it's about representation it's about voices it's about how can we learn from each other and the experiences that we've had and again i'd never aspired necessarily to be on air but i really enjoyed my time doing that because it was it was like a a free history lesson every week that i actually got paid for which was (laughs) which was kind of great um so that's how i ended up coming to the states you know partly because i got married but you know i was able to you know to have a really fruitful freelance career just off the back of walking into a station and kind of saying hey I'd love to hear about what you're doing,
0: you know, natural curiosity. (laughs) I like the fact that your nerdy passion is the thing that kind of opened the door to a possibility or that here was this archive. And because you're an audio nerd, you know, you saw it as this is a rich resource that needs to be mined. You know, you followed your passion to do that. That's encouraging that there are those opportunities if you open yourself up to them to, you know, do something that's fulfilling to yourself, but also is enriching to other people by you know shedding some light on the, on these these moments in history and I know you were also involved in as the managing editor of the California newsroom what was that
1: yeah so actually one thing that I do want to add just on doing that show with the BBC because it kind of makes a connection so I actually ended up writing a book because of that work that I did with the Pacifica Radio Archives. It was a book about the Obama presidency, but through the lens of Black America. It's called Redefining Black Power. And literally, it was a book that kind of took, you know, voices from the archives with voices of, as it was back then, you know, I was doing my reporting from, like, 2009, all the way through up until when the book came out in 2012. And kind of, you know, those lessons from the past and like literally what we were like the real history that we were actually kind of living in that moment. And I would never have thought about, you know, writing a book. I'm an audio journalist for a reason. Like I don't wanna <laughs> I don't want to write anything down. I don't wanna have to, you know, do the equivalent of a new essay like every, every day. That's why I don't work in print. But again, it was just that other way of thinking about how could I be in touch with the audience? How could I tell stories? I'm so glad that I did and actually kind of did a couple of other book projects after that. But I think just being open to those different types of opportunities have have opened me up to experiences that I would never have had. And people who I would never have met or things that I just would never have tried just from being, you know, a little bit of a nerd and and frankly, just like being a little bit nosy (laughs) as well. So,
0: yeah, being curious, being nosy. Can pay off a lot. Tell me, tell, let's talk a little bit about the writing experience. This is you, know, you said this is not something that you would normally do. How did you tackle a book project? I mean, did somebody approach you? Did you come up with the idea? And then once, you know, somebody said, yeah, go ahead and do it, or you said, I'm going to do it. What was the process like?
1: Yeah. So because I was doing the audio, the, the weekly shows with the Pacific and Radio Archives, they were already in conversation with City Lights Books about doing some kind of written project. They didn't know what it would be, but but they were kind of like, you know, we really should do something, you know, putting this archive in a different format that, you know, would give people access. And because I was going in every week and pulling this tape and, and sometimes they were digitizing stuff that I found because I was like hey what's what's this Jesse Owens tape here and they're like wait what hold on and they digitize it and we'd hear it and then would be like okay well, we can kind of do a show out of that but they were already in conversations with City Lights and you know I give credit to Brian DeShazer who was the director of the archives at the time he was like hey Joanne would you like to do the book and I originally like very much said no <laughs> because I was like I don't write books like why would I do that and he's like But I've heard your scripts, though. Your scripts are really good. I really think that you should think about this. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And I came home and my husband was like, have you lost your mind? You have to do the book. And I was like, oh, fine. But I was like, start with what you know. And I know how to interview people. And that I know. So I'm like, okay, well, why don't I do it as an interview book that has written introductions for context at the beginning where we kind of bring in some of the archive quotes from the archive and we'll do it that way. That's how I got around it. I I approached it like an audio journalist. And again, you know was able to kind of spin that out into when we did the book tour it wasn't just oh hey I'm just going to sit and read the book you know we had panel guests you know we had conversations you know we had all of these things that we had the audience do to kind of really bring them into it, you know their memories about all their thoughts at that time about what the Obama presidency met meant and so you know there was a little mini kind of spin-off podcast from it and all those kind of things. So. It was again something that I would never have thought to do. I would never have thought to pitch a book project, but I'm really glad that I did it because it stretched me as a journalist. It got me to think about how do you present content in a different way for an audience. And I also realized that I actually really do like writing quite a
0: lot. <laughs> so it was worthwhile. Yeah. I think if you can communicate, certainly if you're somebody who's doing, you know, a radio show or a podcast or is doing an interview you're able to think on your feet, you're constructing things in your, your head. The more you do it, the more you understand how to, you know, what makes a good story, what, what's going to engage people. There's like this invisible barrier between text and audio. It's not really a barrier because it's all communication and it's all, you know, certainly there's certain storytelling techniques you wouldn't necessarily do that you do in audio that you, you wouldn't do for text, but. Anyway, that's my opinion. So I know you said that there was a podcast associated with the book, but you also worked on this other podcast, The King of Crenshaw. How did that come about?
1: So here's a bit of a theme here. I get asked to do stuff, and I don't know why,
0: but I really because you pre- say yes, that's why. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm. Re- I really say a- yes if you ask her.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, no. I say no to quite a lot of stuff too, but I think people know I'm always so interested in telling. Stories that have nuance, you know, telling stories about communities of color. King of Crenshaw is a series that was produced for ESPN 30 for 30. Great series. Yeah. And it was again, you know, ESPN was not necessarily a place that I would have ever thought that I would have worked, even though I deeply respect what they do, especially in the 30 for 30 realm. But it came about because I had a conversation with a colleague. I was in the midst of working with NPR on their California Newsroom Collaborative Project here in California. And I was kind of like, man, I really miss just like having my hands on tape. I really miss being in that production space. And of course, she took that and like scrolled it away in, in her brain. And about two months later, this friend, she messaged me and she was like, hey, Faye for 30 is looking for a producer in L.A. to work on this project about Nipsey Hussle. So I then proceeded to send her a long list of people who I was like, oh, you should reach out to this person. And she was like, no, what about you? And I was like, hmm. I was like, oh, I'll talk with them. That's always my thing. I was like, you can have a conversation. It never hurts. And of course, I had a conversation with the EPs and then I had a conversation with the host, Justin Tinsley. And that just sealed it for me. It was, you know, telling the story about, you know, Nipsey Hussle, I knew his music, but I just knew him as a rapper from LA who was tragically shot and killed, you know, at the age of 33. And as Justin was kind of sharing this story with me, I was like, I've got to be involved in this. I've got to be able to tell the story. And it was this intersection of hip hop, sport, grief, black brotherhood, but also what it means to to be a part of a community and elevate a community. And I was like, I have to figure out how to do this. So so I did it. You know, at one point I had like two jobs, which was insane. And this was in the middle of a pandemic. I joke that we had a team of four, between four and six at various points. And even up to this day, as of the day that we are recording this in 2022, none of us have met in person. It was all done via Zoom. We had to send recording kits around the country. I think I did one, no, two interviews in person. One of them was um, Nipsey Hussle's brother who agreed to speak with us. But I was like, this is insanity. Like, what are you doing? But again, I think it very much set me up for my role with, with APM Studios because you know even though I've worked in podcasting in various ways you know I had my own business back in 2008 when trying to set up an RSS feed was a real <laughs> was a was a real kind of you know
0: tell me did you, did you program RSS feeds I mean did you actually write like the RSS feed for like podcasts or did you rely on a system or a, a widget
1: my husband would do some of them and then I kind of found widgets that I could use but yeah back in 0809 it was <laughs> It was really tough or trying to get stuff on iTunes. I was like, I need like a computing degree to do this because this is really tough. (laughs) Yeah, it
0: it was a really different different time. (laughs) It
1: was a completely different time. But, you know, but because of all of that, I have a real appreciation for, you know, for the craft. Like I love traditional public media. I love, you know, call-in shows and all of those kind of things. But I also really love the way that anyone can have a laptop or a phone And some audio editing equipment, if they choose, and they can put their voice out into the world. And so all of those experiences, King of Crenshaw, all the rest of it, I think really feeds into the work and how I approach what I do at APM Studios. Because I'm like, it's not just about the celebrity voice. It's not just about the big name. You know, you can come with an idea. It's like, let's look at the idea first and then figure out how we can use the platform to amplify that, so even though some things that I've done have been really hard, I'm glad for all of it because it's it's made me the journalist and the programmer and the content leader that I am today. And I just I couldn't do this work without having done all those other things.
0: So tell me about APM. What is it you're hoping to accomplish there?
1: Oh, all the things, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. Everything. All the things. All the. You know. It's interesting. So again, like full transparency, like the, this wasn't a job that I necessarily was thinking about, you know. That's I, the best I, jobs. Yeah, I always, always, you know, I had finished with Nipsey, I had finished with the California Newsroom and I was really thinking about, you know, kind of like going back to being freelance for a while. I do a lot of work in the kind of in the leadership space with people in color through an organization I run called Entitled. And I was like, you know, I'm really going to lean into that. And, you know, I was really enjoying actually working with different public media stations and some commercial entities and, and what have you. I will shout out our general manager, Lily Kim, who is amazing. Part one. And my colleagues, Alex Shafford and Tonda DiNapoli. But, you know, in conversation with Lily, she really laid out a vision of kind of what her vision is for APM Studios, which is really kind of looking at this legacy brand of American public media and thinking about how we serve the audience in this digital age you know like how do we serve children how do we think about lifestyle and culture how do we do news but put our own kind of spin on news and you know you put a challenge like that in front of me and i'm like oh, well i gotta I got say yes now right <laughs> i, I gotta come and and kind of do this but i really love like i mentioned this medium of podcasting and what you can do with it but i think we're also in this space right now where there is so much of it you know everywhere you turn there's a new podcast someone has a new show there's a new this there's a new that and there's nothing wrong with that and that's the beauty of the platform right that's why we enjoy it but I think somewhere in all of that we've kind of lost we've lost what it means for the audience you know we've lost that you know when we are making something we're asking the person on the other end the audience the listener hey give up your 15 minutes 20 minutes 30 minutes, an hour to spend time with us and we can't take that time for granted because there isn't a lot of time often and so what I'm thinking about with APM Studios is partly kind of getting back to basics a little bit of if we're making something, how does it exist or what function does it serve in somebody's life? You know, is it to the busy parent who might need 15 minutes to be able to get ready in the morning so is it like a short little podcast that their child that they know that their child is going to be safe to listen to independently while they go and make lunch or grab breakfast or grab a shower or what have you is it that you know you need a really good laugh at the end of the day what's that thing that we can plug in there for 30 minutes that is going to give someone that belly laugh or that oh my gosh this is just what I needed to kind of cleanse the palate of my day. Is it something where we need to help people kind of relax and calm down? So say a show like The Slowdown, which is, you know, kind of poetry every day that it's not a big time commitment, but you you listen to it and you kind of, you instantly, like Ada Lamone is phenomenal in that way that you hear a voice and you drop your shoulders and you do a big exhale and you're like, okay, I'm good. I can, I can kind of relax now. And so I'm really looking at our programming through that lens. What function do we serve in people's days? Let's be respectful of the time that we're asking people to spend with us. And let's really give them stuff that they will enjoy, but also they're going to be like, oh my gosh, I heard this thing on APM Studios. I really want to share it. Or I learned this thing from listening to this podcast. You really got to listen to this because it's it's going to help you feel better. Also as well, it's about broadening out who we're serving. And like Michael, we've been talking for a little while now, so you'll you'll recognize this theme. But again, you know, public media, as much as I love it, hasn't necessarily done the best job of serving diverse audiences. And in podcasting, we really have an opportunity to do that. You know, some of the fastest growing demographics of folks who are listening, engaging with podcasts are people of color, black and Latinos how do we serve that audience? How do we think about Asian Americans or those with kind of Asian heritage? How do we serve indigenous folks? Like how do we just kind of bring all of those people in who haven't necessarily been served by public media, particularly comprehensively. And so it's bringing on new shows not just with subjects that would be of interest to that particular audience, but just with hosts that look like them, you know, or hosts that they can identify with. You know, I know for me growing up, that was the biggest issue that I had. I was like, yeah, this, this radio thing is great. There's no one on air that sounds like me or looks like me. What's up with that? So we really want to create a space where people can see themselves where they can recognize their life experiences or what they're going through. And so it doesn't just kind of feel like, oh yeah, that was fine, but yeah, that kind of wasn't really for me, you know? So it's helping people recognize themselves in what they hear and hopefully they enjoy it enough that they'll go and share it with other people. Just getting back to basics.
0: (laughs) Well, and you, you know, as an audiophile, you recognize that the beauty of this type of communication, of this type of platform is you know how quickly it can break through barriers not my connection to you or you know your connection to whoever you're talking to or your host is talking to there's so few barriers between that and the audience the longer you podcast the more you you understand that that's really kind of the magic of it you did mention npr a little bit but since you got sort of a foot in in radio and you've got a foot in podcasting where is i mean And I'm not saying specifically NPR, but I mean, where is radio in all this? You know, it's still in some places, it's still a a really viable, dependable, you know, resource for people, but you know, podcasting continues to grow. It's tough in some markets from a financial standpoint in supporting, you know, radio stations for various reasons, you know, for example, baby boomers tend to be the ones who go to the radio for the news and, and entertainment and things, so as more and more people sort of cross over into podcasting, you know, where, where does radio fit in all this, you think?
1: Radio will always have a place, but radio has, just like how, as I mentioned, thinking about podcasting with APM Studios, about the function that we play in, in people's lives, like radio needs to be having that same, and very specifically public media, I should say, has to be having that same conversation. You know, the pandemic really taught us all, that we can't take for granted actually that people are gonna be in their cars making that long commute. You know, we can't take for granted that people are gonna switch on the radio, you know, while they're doing their housework on the weekend or, or what have you. That, that, that association isn't as strong as it was just because we live in a very different way now and literally the pandemic just kind of blew everything up in many ways. And so it becomes about, why is this radio service important to me? And it kind of brings it full circle to this is why thinking about a diverse audience and diverse in all the ways, not just race, but gender and kind of sexual orientation and, you know, location, geography, age, all of those things become really important because people have to have a reason to come and listen to you. And it's what do people get when they turn on the dial and are they getting what they need at the time that they choose to engage with you? you know so i think there's a tough conversation to be had about how radio public media again specifically remains relevant if we're not also thinking about what are the extensions of our brand to to find people where they are so leaning into into digital and you know and you see this at you know our APM colleagues LAIST KPCC that You know, you could listen to the radio and get one experience, but LAist is very much its own thing. And people go to LAist for information and they may never listen to the radio. And I think radio stations really have to think in that way of what do we offer just beyond the broadcast experience? Because we have to think about, we got to think about different revenue streams. We got to think about how people need to access the content in the ways that they want to. But the big thing to remember is that, you know, I live in Southern California and yes, I'm going to turn the radio on during wildfire season because I need to know, is my house going to burn down and do I need to move? (laughs) You know, there is still that very much kind of news as it happens function that radio serves and people will turn on the radio for that. But it's like, okay, beyond the emergency crisis, what else is there to offer? And I think that's what radio really has to think about right now.
0: Well, what's funny is that there's sort of another Another side to this with podcasts, you know, early on it was all roundtable discussions, or it was sort of produced audio like an NPR show or, or something. But then people began to imagining podcasts being different things, you know, being a newscast. So you know, exploring the the flexibility of this of uh, this medium. Before I wrap up, wrap up, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something about myself. I don't I talk about this a lot on the on the podcast. But I, like you said yes to a lot of things. And for me, podcasting opened some doors and I wrote a book and the book led to me teaching podcasting and that job got the attention of the U S state department. And I, I got to go over to Tajikistan to teach young journalists how to podcast. And when that was pitched to me, I was like, I did not understand it because I thought podcasts podcast, the last thing that they probably need, but. Once I became more familiar with the the situation and understood the sort of, you know, the freedom of the press, the access to media situation there, then it was like, oh, yeah, podcast makes a lot of sense. Because here's a medium that people can tell their own story that has a very little low barrier of entry and cost and, you know, present a different type of content than they would be able to get from a not a state controlled media, but a media that is very heavily influenced by the state this type of storytelling is something that can change people in a lot of different ways and it doesn't have to be the the network show it doesn't have to be the this or that it can be almost wherever your imagination goes i anyway i just felt i wanted to share that with you just because i thought it, somehow it fit in with the conversation
1: thank you for sharing that because i think you're absolutely right we hadn't talked about n s actually i don't even think I, I, it's probably not on my resume anywhere but I, I spent some time in Malawi a number of years back and, you know, I kind of went to do some reporting on what initially I thought was about the horrors of the food crisis there. And what it actually ended up being was a series of stories about resilience and innovation and gender roles and kind of like all of these things and faith and kind of all of these things. But going into these villages, like I would be mobbed because folks were like, "Okay, listen, you have to go and speak to this person because they've got a story about this. Or can you record this? You know, when you go into Blantyre and, you know, go to this particular place, like, can you send this as a message? Like, and, And this would have been this would have been what, like 2004? Four two 2005-ish. And so, you know, people didn't necessarily have cell phones and, and kind of all of those things in, in that kind of way. But when you, I mean, this is like a whole other podcast, to be honest, but when you get out of the Western sensibility of, quote, unquote, the rights that people have around the microphone and what the right that they have to say whatever they want, you know, the truth is that audio... You know, be it the radio, like what I experienced as a kid, you know, when I would go back home to Barbados, like sharing information is life in some places. You know, it literally can save lives or it can inform people, it can keep them safe. And it is actually very applicable here in the US when you get out of the cities. You know, I work on a project called Next Gen, which is, you know, kind of training for young journalists with NPR (laughs) and Doug Mitchell, who you probably know. Doug Mitchell.
0: Doug Mitchell's been on the podcast a couple of times. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He's a great guy. He's awesome. But, you know, but what he's doing, like the last project that I worked on last year was actually with NAJA and working with some indigenous journalists. And like the stories that they wanted to tell, they were like this is how it can help my community my hope actually for the industry really would be that we kind of get back to those fundamentals of it's not just about having the microphone it's really understanding kind of what the power of audio can do and how it can help people live better lives like we've got so far away from that so yeah to your point of your experience kind of going overseas audio is life for some people and I wish that we would talk about that more here
0: Yes. Amen. I agree with that. I've taken enough of your time. This has been a pleasant conversation. Joanne, thank you for being on the podcast.
1: No, thank you for having me, Michael. It's been fun.
0: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter you get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Lameo Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.